0: Support for today's show comes from Squarespace because Squarespace wants amazing people to build websites. Anyone can do it, sure. But they said, hey, listeners to the Cracked Podcast probably have things to sell, writing to show off, or just want to be present on the internet because we live in the future and that's where the internet is. Get yourself a customizable template created by a world-class designer. Get yourself 24-7 support from Squarespace. And you can do that by heading to squarespace.com slash cracked for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code cracked to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Hey there, folks. Welcome to another episode of the Cracked Podcast, the podcast all about why being alive is more interesting than people think it is. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I'm the head of podcasting here at Cracked. I'm also known as Schmitty the Clam, and I am also, also on record as a Grover Cleveland fan, to my tremendous shame. And in my past self's defense, you know, there's a lot to like about Cleveland. He tried to slow down the move toward American imperialism that was executed by the Republicans who served before him as president and after him as president and in between him as president. If if people know one thing about Grover Cleveland, it's probably that he had two terms that were not next to each other. If they know anything beyond that, maybe it's that he was a hard worker or tried to reform corruption, you know, all fun stuff. Not everybody knows that he had secret surgery on his head, on a boat, in a way that it was kind of dangerous to the country and also ruined a journalist's life. It's a whole thing. There's a fantastic book about it called The President is a Sick Man by Matthew Algeo. We will footnote it because what happened is in 1893, Cleveland had just started his second term, doctors found an enormous mass kind of in his jaw and cheek bit. And so he said, okay, this July, we'll just get on a boat in Long Island Sound and secretly remove the entire mass. We'll do it in a more dangerous way that makes no scars on my face and no one knows it happened. And then we'll just keep that secret for a while. He told a handful of people, the handful of people did not include his vice president. And then when journalist E.J. Edwards, a Philadelphia newspaper man, found out about this. He tried to report it and Cleveland's team ruined Edward's life and then kept it secret for about 24 years until the truth finally came out. And I think that's an underrated fact. About a president. Today's topic is overrated myths and underrated facts about U.S. presidents. That is such a fascinating story, and Cleveland in popular culture is just the guy whose two terms were spread out. That's it. You should know more, because you deserve the best facts. You, got, you ought to get them. And as you look at the presidents of the United States, it seems like most of us have been taught something untrue or not taught something true and awesome About just about all of them. For every Cleveland who had secret surgery on his face, there's a Woodrow Wilson who had a stroke in 1919. And then his wife handled about the last year and a half of his presidency just kind of for him, and that was the deal. Isn't that fascinating? And then meanwhile, we're taught myths about people like Ulysses S. Grant. We're told he was an out-of-control drunk all the time, when in actuality, there were just some historians from the South who didn't like him very much. Or we're taught the myth that JFK's dad made a fortune as a bootlegger in Prohibition when he had actually made a fortune before Prohibition by doing pretty prominent stuff like running three different Hollywood movie studios. It's all sort of stunning what we learn about them, and I'm so excited, folks. It is fully stunning that I get to talk to my guest this week. We are extremely lucky. Our guest is Elliot Kalen. You may know him from his podcast, Presidents Are People Too, or his movie podcast, The Flophouse. You have almost certainly enjoyed his comedy writing, whether or not you know it. Elliot is the head writer of The Return of Mystery Science Theater 3000, which is a huge show. And then before that, he was the head writer of kind of an indie, little-known show. Uh, I'm going to try to get the name of it right. Uh, You, you like deep-cut TV heads, probably know it. Uh, but It's called um, The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. Okay, so head writer of that. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't know it, but maybe you do. It is bonkers that Elliot sat down with me. You can probably hear how stoked I am about it on this show. And I'm even more stoked you get to hear it now because presidents are people too and a lot of fun. Please sit back or stand up and walk over there and solemnly throw out your Grover Cleveland fan memorabilia. Hey, like a lot of us voted for the wrong guy in 1892. Okay, it happens. You're fine. Either way, enjoy this episode of The Crack Podcast with Elliot Kalin. I'll be back after we wrap up. Talk to you then. I like to know where people are from when they are fans of presidents because I'm from Illinois. And so it was branded to me very, very heavily, very, very young that Abe Lincoln who is not from Illinois, founded us somehow. Like could, that was the whole thing.
1: You could say he came into his own as a man in Illinois. Yeah. His time in Kentucky and Indiana, he was just, he was a boy. He was a young man. Right. Then he comes to Illinois and he's like, okay, this is, this is the me place. This is where I'm going <laughs> to really mature and blossom and take off my glasses and shake down my long hair. And <laughs> when I walk into that dance... People are, like, not even going to recognize that it's me because I'm going to be so beautiful. That's basically what Abe Lincoln did when he (laughs) went to Illinois. But I'm from uh, New Jersey,
0: which
1: has Woodrow Wilson, Yeah, and I don't know if it has any other –
0: So it wasn't wasn't huge fandom of Princeton President Woodrow Wilson that got you way into the presidents of the United States. No, not very much at all.
1: And it's (laughs) funny because you're like – because Lincoln I think of as being from Illinois. But Woodrow Wilson, even though he was governor of New Jersey, he was president of Princeton College – uh, or Princeton University, whatever it is. I didn't go there. I don't know if it's a college or university. But uh, he's a southern man. Like he's very much – he was from Virginia I think originally. Oh, so wow. like all – he was a historian. A lot of his, his history is about like how great the south is, how great everything <laughs> was before the Civil War. <laughs> like So even him, I'm like, he's not a real New Jersey guy. Like it's not like <laughs> Bruce Springsteen was the president. <laughs>
0: Well and so what uh led you into being fascinated by presidents of the US cuz you made this whole podcast along with your co-host Alexis Co mm-hmm. Presidents are People too what what kind of sparked it is it you love history and they're the most interesting part or something separate about them what got you there
1: I've always loved history and I yeah. particularly always loved like putting myself in the mindset of someone from a time like trying to figure out what was it like to live at a specific time. And presidents are a good focal, central point for that. I mean, they rarely lived the common experience of the time that they lived in because they were, for one thing, they were president, which (laughs) most people do not do. But the other thing is that Alexis and I used to talk about, she's an old friend of my wife's, and so we would see each other and we'd talk about presidents at like parties and things like that. And it was her idea originally. She was like, we should do something about presidents. But I'd always read a lot about them, and I think – coming of age at a t- at the time of the Bush-Gore election. It kind of asked a lot of questions about like, what makes someone presidential? How do these things happen? It felt like there was this regular way that presidents were supposed to be elected. And then suddenly this thing happened that threw everything into doubt. And I was in college at the time. And it was this big realization that like, oh, history is a thing that just happens randomly almost. Not randomly because there's causes leading up to it. But history is not something where people are like, and things are going along, and I think in 10 years we'll have a war, and then we'll have – we'll plan some like non-historical stuff. Then we'll have – that history just kind of erupts. you know. Right. And I think that at the time got me thinking about like who are who are presidents and how easily someone who wasn't president could have been president or vice versa. You look back at history and you're like, oh, well, then this guy won the election because everybody in America wanted him to be president. And then you read about it and you're like – Oh, he's a weird guy. Everything in the United States was weird at that time. It could have easily gone the other way. Like everything gets the aura of inevitability once Mm -hmm. it happens. But when you're living it, like for instance, right now, and I don't want to talk too much about the current president because I'm sure everyone listening to this has done that today at some
0: point. (laughs) Right, it's the mental disorder we're all afflicted with (laughs) now. Yeah, exactly. We just have to.
1: It feels like the entire nation has become like one of those people who – is really focused on like there's that woman who died and left all her money to Charles Bronson, and she never met Charles Bronson. She was Whoa. just she just thought about him all the time. I've never heard of this. Oh, it was years ago, and it's like <laughs> and it feels like that's what America is right now. We're like, whether you like the president or you don't like the president, you're always thinking about him all the time. For us, we're like, this is crazy. This is an insane person, and all these crazy things had to happen for him to be president. But 10 years from now, let alone 50 years from now, It'll be the past, and people will just be like, "Yeah, that's how that happened." You like every historical event once it's over feels inevitable.
0: Also, I, I hadn't quite thought about it, but even in. My own life in the presidents that I remember well, like being, you know, an aware person for it's Bill Clinton, who Mm -hmm. played the saxophone on television, Uh which, you know, and then uh, from there. I'll I'll
1: stand by it. Not a good president. I'll tell people that.
0: (laughs) I don't care. And then George W. Bush, because they couldn't totally count the votes either way. So they just kind of picked in court. And then Barack Obama, who is a different ethnicity than all of the previous presidents. And then Donald Trump. That's my lifetime is four incredibly uh, unpredictable yeah. presidents and, and very different, and you never would have expected it almost. And
1: someday they're all going to be faces on a placemat that some, some kid has, and all he's going to remember about them are Bill Clinton. Maybe it'll be remembered that he was something about sex. Yeah.
0: George W. <laughs> Bush,
1: dumb or war.
0: Dumb and war, yeah. Barack
1: Obama, black. <laughs> Donald Trump, crazy. Like, there's room for, except for like a few presidents, there's room in people's heads for about one fact about them, just like most of the 19th century presidents are. You know, like Zachary Taylor was a person who lived, and when he was president, people agreed or disagreed with him, and then he died. Died yeah. during his term, but to most of us, he's just like, oh, that's a sour-looking guy. He's just a, he's he's just <laughs> one of the black and white faces on that poster,
0: right? When to them, he was like an action hero. He had won a war, and he was like the most famous person in the country, probably. Oh, yeah. And now it's like, oh, he's in that run of guys: uh, Taylor, Fillmore. I, I, I don't know.
1: They're like out yeah. These, old. these were all people who, <laughs> at one point, were the most powerful person in the country, depending on the strength of the president at the time. You got like guys like Benjamin Harrison, where they couldn't really seem to get anything done. But now they're mostly forgotten. The uh, the flip side of that, which I want to mention earlier and I forgot to, is that when you lose a presidential election, it is the biggest losing point ever. Like you're always a loser. There's no – the only president I can think of who came back from losing a presidential election was Nixon. I guess – no, that's not true. Andrew Jackson. Like never mind. There are a couple of them. But for most people, it's like, oh, you lost the presidential election? You're a big loser. And it's like <laughs> yesterday, they could have become the most powerful person in the world. But today, that like Mitt Romney is a he has $250 million. He's super handsome. Like he's about to become a senator again, probably. Or again, he's about to be a senator probably. He's never been a senator before. But the day after he lost the presidential election, I was like, what a loser. And he's always <laughs> gonna be a loser to me. Like yeah. so that everyone who's president, except for George Washington, who ran unopposed, basically, like Everyone ran for president. There was that moment where they could have turned into, through the rest of their lifetime, just a huge loser that people always kind of felt bad for. Yeah, And then they would have been forgotten even faster.
0: Well, because I, I remember right after that election Romney lost, it was a few – week or two later, there was a picture of him in a store buying Honey Nut Cheerios. And he was just wearing a T-shirt and some shorts. He was just doing things that humans do that I had probably done that week, go to the store, buy Honey oh, Nut yeah. Cheerios. And I saw the picture and I was like, what an enormous buffoon. Like,
1: what an what idiot. A- <laughs> what a loser. He must be so sad all the time buying his own cereal like a schmuck. Is that What's the same – it's like that famous picture of uh, – Glenn Danzig with the box of kitty litter in his hands in a parking lot. And it's like any other, any other human being carrying kitty litter, I'd be like, they must own a cat. That's good. They're taking care of them. But because right. Glenn Danzig, I'm like, some shock rocker. <laughs> like like this. All right. Mother, may, may I take yeah. care of the cat tonight? Like, okay. Or uh when Al Gore gained a bunch of weight, people were like, look at this guy. Look at this. Look at this fat. Yeah. So it's like most people when they get older gain weight. Like it's <laughs> <laughs> just, or or he when he he won an Academy Award, you know, and people were like, "Yeah, loser." Yeah. This what is, an idiot! <laughs> what a moron! <laughs> but the, it could have gone either way. There's there's almost no election that couldn't have gone either way at some point if just the right thing had happened. So yeah, history is nuts that way.
0: Well, yeah, and and as you said, there is such a phenomenon of. When we, when someone is the president, we only remember one or two things about them at all. And I feel like it's amazing how many times those few things can be incorrect. Like we were talking about Lincoln so much, I feel like one of the key sort of myths of Lincoln is that he was just this simple country lawyer who was trying to be like just helping out random local people in Illinois, you know? This comes up a bit in a cracked article called Five Famous Pieces of Presidential Trivia that are total BS by Alex Hanton because Lincoln ran a law firm or was part of a law firm in Springfield that handled up to a third of all the local cases. And then he was working for the Illinois Central Railroad and in one individual case would make a $5,000 fee, which is $5,000 in very, very old-timey money. Which like is, that's enormous amounts of wealth. It's
1: a huge amount. I mean, he was yeah. a, a, it's a curious thing because if you were someone from a big city, yeah. you would assume he was a, Simple Country Lawyer because he dressed terribly and he never brushed his hair and he talked in a, in a funny – like his voice, people describe it as being like – he just, he was a hick basically. He sounded like a hick. And he lived out on the frontier in Illinois, not not like Log Cabin Frontier, but it was still – people were still like, oh, all the way over there in Illinois? Do they have people there? Let's, but uh,
0: Yeah, they hadn't really built up Chicago yet or anything. Like the whole state was considered frontier if yeah. you were out on the east coast. No,
1: but Lincoln was—he was a corporate lawyer. He was a railroad lawyer. Like he was—he yeah. was a guy who, he was very much considered one of, if not the top lawyer in Springfield. Like there's there's that image. The, the images of him are like to the people around him, he was kind of a weirdo because he didn't want to do physical work. He would, but he didn't want to. He wanted to read books. He wanted to know everything about the law. He wanted to know everything about everything he get his hands on. Like he was all right. he was like the, a huge like he was like a huge nerd in a world where that didn't really exist. Whereas like he was I mean when he grew up he was growing up in a place where it was like there that was log cabin times and it was like what are we going to do tonight? I guess we'll get drunk and fight and bite each other's ears off like that's <laughs> that's our entertainment here. And he's like I'm going to go read a book, but but to people outside that. Region. He was like – he was the guy who didn't fit in anywhere. Like outside of that region, there's a story about the McCormick Reaper case or something like that where it was like a patent infringement case, and they needed a local guy because the court was – it was going to be done in, in Illinois. So they needed a local guy, so Lincoln got hired as the local lawyer. And I want to say it was Edwin Stanton who would go on to be oh. in Lincoln's cabinet. Yeah. was like the big hotshot lawyer that they brought in, and Lincoln spent all this time researching, and he's going to put together all these these arguments. And he shows up and they're like – and I think – I'm going to say Stanton. I apologize if I'm wrong. Stanton and and Stanton's partner are like, we got it. Don't worry about it. You're not really part of this team. And and Lincoln (laughs) – You're the
0: prop Illinoisian. Just sit there.
1: Yeah, basically. And and you can go home now. And (laughs) it was this huge like dramatic blow to Lincoln probably. And he like went and just watched them have this trial to see if he could learn anything from them. In Illinois, he's like Johnny Cochran. But oh, okay. to anyone outside of Illinois, he is you know country lawyer, thumbs under the thumbs under the suspenders and things like that. To say like, oh yeah, he was this simple country lawyer, and there's that case where that they that the movie Young Mister Lincoln is about, where he got the guy off the murder charge because it's like, but there was no bright moon that <laughs> night, so you couldn't have seen the murder. Like the uh, it's so
0: Hardy Boys, oh, yeah. Man.
1: <laughs> and, so, and people take that to me like, oh okay, he was, and because it makes it a better story, it's a better story. If he is Dave, essentially. Uh, like oh, the movie Dave. The movie yeah. Dave. It's a, it's a better story about Abe Lincoln if, if it's the movie Dave. If he's yeah. this humble guy and he just stumbles straight from log cabin to White House like Kramer or something like that. To me, it's a more exciting story the real way, but it's not as picturesque if he is a guy who never fit in where he was. He has some of those values of the, you know, the, live, of the rural life. He understands it, but yeah. he doesn't like it. He doesn't fit in there. He doesn't get along with the people from that place because he wants to learn, and he wants to – and he's going to work as hard as possible. He's going to do whatever it takes to get there, and he's super ambitious. All he dreams about is someday becoming so well-known that people know who Abraham Lincoln is and maybe remember him when he's dead. Like he's – many times he said, all I want to do is do something – is accomplish something where people will remember me, and I want to do something that gets respect and – like he's a guy – he wanted attention and he wanted regard, you know, that he like was so brilliant and such a schemer that he was able to like, uh, you know what? Uh, let me make it. So I'll just pull some strings over here so that the nominating convention for the presidency is in my hometown of Springfield, Illinois. Like,
0: <laughs> and he was kind of a smoke-filled room pick for the 1860 nomination. Oh, very much. Nomination.
1: Outside – until 1858, people don't really know who he is outside of Illinois. He would served in yeah. Congress for one term and gave a couple speeches that nobody really paid attention to in Congress. And he, he spoke out against the Mexican-American War that we had just won. Then so until he until the Lincoln-Douglas debates, like he's kind of well-known, but the Lincoln-Douglas debates and then his speech at Cooper Union, suddenly he is a national figure. The real story is this guy who like was super brilliant, super crafty, worked super hard and could outthink anybody else. It makes us feel better as Americans if it's, oh, he's just this aw guy because then anyone could be Abe Lincoln when in reality – only Abe Lincoln could be Abe Lincoln. There's a thing that uh, we did an episode of Presence for People 2 about George H.W. Bush. And we talked to John Meacham who wrote this big biography of, of George Bush where he he spent a lot of time with him. And he he said George Bush said to him, oh, to win, that was always the most important thing, to be the best and to win and be number one. Like that's that was always the value of, of his family was to always to win. And with Lincoln, it was probably a little similar. Like wow. if you were going to set a challenge for him, he was like, OK, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be the guy who does that. I'm either going to do it, or I'm going to try so hard that you're still going to be impressed, even if I don't. But I'm going to try as hard as I can to win. You know, that's
0: amazing. Well, and I also I feel like a lot of presidents probably have that kind of drive behind them some oh, way. Yeah. Like that's the only way you do all the crazy cutthroat political
1: things you need to do to be president. It's very rare that somebody who doesn't want to be president ends up as president. Or like, yeah. it's a very hard thing to do. To, like you have to do <laughs> so much to get to that level. Starting with. George Washington, who I'm sure was not as much as he was very much like, I just want to go back to civilian life now. It's hard to – when everyone is like you're the only person in the country that everybody listens to, it's hard not to – get the taste in it of it as yeah. lincoln would say by being president the taste is, of is in my mouth of of it and uh or something like oh. that it's very rare that the president doesn't have that ambition but they all have to pretend that they don't
0: right because we want just uh an affable person we who's want the right person
1: a, a, you know plato philosopher king who like, oh i'll take power <laughs> if it's thrust upon me because otherwise it shows greed and ambition and those are terrible things oh yeah oh no but, yeah but uh but even – that's why all the stories about President Trump where they're like he didn't even really want to be president. He didn't think he could do it, and then he was just going to build his business off of it. I'm like, I don't think – like I don't think so. Like right. even if he didn't think he would win, like he wanted it. You know,
0: Nobody yeah, who yeah. runs
1: for president doesn't want it except maybe William Howard Taft who did not want to be president. Then Theodore Roosevelt and his wife kind of like pushed him into doing it, and he was like, I just want to be Supreme Court justice. Why would oh. you? I don't want to be president, but they made him do it. So Taft, when he's president, he's, like, not great. He's fine. And then when he's Supreme Court justice, uh, he, like, really pushes that the Supreme Court should have its own building because it didn't have one yet. And oh. he's le- and they built it. And uh, I think that's probably – if you talk to his ghost, that's probably what he's most proud of <laughs> is that he got them to do a new building for the Supreme Court.
0: Yeah, and also never getting stuck in a bathtub, which yeah. is totally and made up.
1: That didn't happen either. Yeah. He knew he was fat, and he got a big bathtub. <laughs> <laughs> he was – because if someone right. – look, at this point – He's been a major lawyer. He was governor general of the Philippines. He was that he was president of the United States. Now, and look, he's smart enough to estimate how big a bathtub is and whether he could fit in it or not.
0: Right, like, a problem with that myth is what adult suddenly, like, because everybody bathes or showers about every day what yeah. adult is suddenly a totally different shape <laughs> the next day he had
1: such an amazing inaugural it doesn't inaugural make any ball. sense he's like I ate a lot at that inaugural ball last night like I really outdid myself time to get in the tub also how did he get in the tub then at the right. when
0: how do you the, get in and then get stuck in? If exactly. it takes yeah. that
1: much effort if – you, if you are so big that you're stuck in the tub, <laughs> it would take you so much effort to climb into it that at a certain point you're like eh, – eh, eh. like, like, sque- like squeezing, trying to wiggle in. You're like, you know what? Maybe this is not the right tub for me because I don't know anyone who likes to wear a bathtub. Like you would wear like a pair of underwear like really tight to you. Right, you right. You want to have like – you want to be able to feel the water, feel enough space. How does the water fit in there if he's getting stuck Ow. in the tub? Exactly. I could believe it if it was like in the Dick Van Dyke show when – uh, when Mary Richards got her, to, or not Mary Richards, a character on the Mary Tyler Moore Show. I'm sorry. When, uh, when Laura, Laura Petrie, yeah. when Laura Petrie gets her toe stuck in the faucet of the bathtub okay. in an episode, maybe that's the story. Right. That like William Howard Taft, for whatever reason, stuck his toe into the faucet, and that got stuck. But the idea that how do he get into the tub? The water must have been sloshing out of the sides like he's Archimedes or something. Like how is he?
0: Like how, is,
1: how is he not? How does he not know ahead of time this is not a tub I should be getting into? He's too smart for that. I call that myth busted.
0: (laughs) Even the basic competitive streak, like as we're looking at – also, just facts about presidents that I think should be more well known. There's a thing with Thomas Jefferson that I picked up mainly from your guys' podcast where I think most people know Thomas Jefferson as, oh, I don't know, liberty and some unsavory personal life stuff. He's somehow the president who, the two things you know about him
1: are freedom and slavery. Like those yeah. are the two things you know Thomas <laughs> Jefferson <it>. about. Liberty <laughs> and slaves. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's it pretty much.
0: Well, and, and it turns out he also was dead set on finding a woolly mammoth. Yeah. He was all about, I'm going to make things happen. I'll send Lewis and Clark. We will track down a woolly mammoth in the present-day United States of well, his day. There, There's context for that, for his obsession with
1: mammoths. And it's not like he was like, they did not really know too much about mammoths at the time. Mm. And there was all this open wilderness. So it's not as crazy as it would be now. Now when people are like, yeah, Bigfoot's out there. I'm like, <laughs> probably not. <laughs> but at the time, there's this huge area that – is only inhabited by native peoples, so yeah. at the Americans of the time would consider it uninhabited because they were racist right. uh, so they would consider it wild virgin territory because only non white people were living there. Jefferson considered himself you know he's a gentleman naturalist like you didn't really have professional scientists at the time you had like guys who could afford to spend their spare time experimenting yeah and he was in this there's this big debate going on between America and France, and there's this guy in France named like the Comte de Buffon or Buffon. It always looks like like Buffon when you read it. I don't speak (laughs) French. But who said there was a big argument between Europe and the Americas. And the Europeans said, Europe is a place of strength. America is a place of weakness. So the animals in Europe are like big and strong and the people are big and strong and smart. And the animals and the people in America are like weak and little. Like it's America's this gross swamp where everything's weak and corrupt. But so Jefferson was like, I want to prove that no, it's the other way around. Europe is old and corrupt it's, our, it's full of monarchs, and it sucks and America is this great new land of, of republican liberty, Republican meaning just you know you vote not, right. not Republicans the, the party uh, it's this great new place of. Liberty and the animals here are super big and super cool. So when you go out there, you bring me back a woolly mammoth. Can I? Can I swear on this? I can't remember. If yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Okay, you're gonna bring me back a fucking woolly mammoth, and <laughs> that's what Jefferson would say. And they couldn't because they were extinct. But but it's but he really he wanted to prove like this land is strong land, and there are, rather than being a place that things shrivel up and die, right. this is a place that because from a lot of Europeans, all they knew about America was the land that on the east coast that was first colonized which was a lot of it was swamp especially in the south like there's like this place sucks it's all swamp land at the time they hated swamps they thought they were it was wasteland
0: right it's just anyway, that in boston and that's it yeah
1: at the time you they didn't really know they were exploring this land but So now it seems crazy. It's as if he was like, find me some moon men. Bring them over. Right. uh, Get me a T-Rex. I like them. Yeah, exactly. But instead he's like, look, that whole land, we don't know what it is, and I want to prove to Europe that we're strong. So get (laughs) me a mammoth. Bring it to me. And then you have to imagine that a couple days into the, the expedition, it was so grueling and so difficult that Lewis and Clark were like, even if we found a mammoth? how are we going to bring it back? You know, like, I guess oh, they like yeah. just cut the trunk off and bring it over or something like that. Like they just need evidence. Just like but, proof. Yeah. yeah.
0: I'm sure they also could have just turned to Sacagawea and said, are there mammoths out here? And she would say no. And then they would be like, on. no,
1: there isn't. And <laughs> they'd be like, well, we'll still look. Oh,
0: <laughs> well. And uh, And then as far as land expansion too, I feel like that's the one other thing people know Jefferson for. And I feel like we should know James K. Polk for it way more. It's really weird looking at uh, Jefferson, he's known for the Louisiana Purchase. It was a lot of gaining land for the United States. And there were already people there, as we've said. But I didn't know until I got to know history much, much later in college, really, that James K. Polk in his one term handled a couple different treaties and an entire Mexican war that added about 40% of the lower 48 states to the country. It's crazy.
1: Yeah, he was, that was, we took an enormous amount of land from Mexico. And then, yeah, the the border between... Northern you – know, yeah. the United States and the Canadian-British dominion area had never been fixed. Right. And so they were like, well, we should do that. We should figure out what – where our country ends and where that country starts. <laughs> but with, with Mexico, it's like – and I say this now as a resident of California, a state that we wouldn't have otherwise. With, with the Mexican War, it was like we basically started a war with Mexico. Polk was like, let's just – I'm going to send some soldiers down there. And then yeah. when trouble starts up, we'll just start the war. We'll say they started it and we'll start the war. And then he and then once we defeated them because Mexico was already in a lot of trouble. Like it was already in bad shape. So it's like the Mexican American War is a little bit like any movie where there's an old man who has a lot of money hidden in his house and the heroes <laughs> of the movie are gonna steal it from him. Except in those <laughs> movies the heist never goes off the way that they planned, you yeah. know? But in this one, the war went off exactly the way they planned, and America just kind of like drove straight through to mexico city just kind of conquering as it went
0: just ruthlessly took the money out of the house and left yeah and it's like a five minute movie and it was a
1: war like it went on for a little bit but it was but it wasn't like it was not a fair fight and then we they were like "Mm, as an indemnity because of all the money we spent on the war that we're gonna say you started mexico you should probably give us like half your country and that was the compromise measure because there were people in the united states saying we should take the whole country like we should take all of Mexico yeah. and Polk was like, let's not be unreasonable. We'll just take about half of it and we'll take all the land where the gold is and we'll take all the land where uh, – you know, we'll take Texas and we'll take you – know, all these places that really – we didn't need to take all that land. It's just strange because the shape of the country – like he sh- that's the shape of the country that, that is, is what Polk left us with and it was not gotten through good means. But, yeah, uh, it's very bad. Yeah, it was pretty bad. But at the same time, it's like, well, we're not going to give it back, though, right? Like, it kind of feels like when uh, a family's rich, and it turns out that they made, like, the guy who made the money made it through some really unsavory way. Sure. Yeah. And the descendants feel bad about it. They're like, we really would rather not publicize the fact. Like, we want to be a philanthropy family, <laughs> and we don't want to publicize the fact that our great 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 grandfather was like a fake preacher who conned a lot of people out of money and then used that money to buy drugs and then sold the drugs to other people. like like a yeah just like some if,
0: elaborate elaborate scheme yeah, yeah.
1: or even just like, like if Pablo Escobar Escobar had not had 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 a family that lasted for a long time and his grand his great great grandkids were now involved in like politics and funding art museums and they're like we really don't want people to remember that all this money comes from cocaine right. but we're not going to give it back either like that's what <laughs> california new mexico and all the other and, and arizona feel like to me where it's like i feel really bad about it but we're going to keep it
0: right it's we're been not a long going time to now. change it <laughs> yeah <laughs> but, but sorry i guess when i and i'm just amazed that Because between the Mexican session after that war, also annexing Texas right before that, and then Texas also claimed a lot more land to its west than is Texas today, Mm -hmm. so there was a bunch there. And then also the Oregon Treaty that set the whole boundary that made sure Washington, Oregon, Idaho, parts of Montana are all in the U.S. One president in one term, James K. Polk, who I don't think is really that well-known to people. No, partly because he only served one term. He didn't run for reelection. And there's yeah. this
1: assumption that if you served one term, you must be a crappy president. But that James K. Polk, he said, I'm only gonna be president for four years, he was one of these guys who's a real ruthless guy.
0: And yeah, his psychology is crazy to me. Because it seems like he just wanted to be president long enough to take over one million square miles of land and yeah. then get out. Like, that was all he wanted.
1: Pretty much. And also he So here's what I think is the origin story for James K. Polk. So when he was about seventeen, he had always been like a had a weak constitution and he suffered from like gallstones and things like that a lot. Yeah. And when he was about 17, his father decided, like, you need an operation. And they took him to a doctor who was one of the better surgeons at the time and said, you need to remove these gallstones. And uh, where's the anesthetic? We don't have that because it's like eighteen seventeen. Okay, so drink some of this brandy and then I'm going to use this blade. I'm just going to cut through your crotch and we're going to remove these gallstones. And it's, uh-huh. it sounds like the most painful aside from like childbirth, it's not like the most painful like operation someone yeah. could go through. From stem to stern, you know how, you know oh, how that, that part of the body works. Imagine – Yeah, I've read about it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they started at one end and they just kind of sliced down to the other <laughs> oh, and then had to reach in and take those stones out. And from that point on, he seems to have been always like kind of a dour, humorless figure and who – and it's – I think it's from that point on that he was like, pleasure is a mistake. I will never have any. The only pleasure I will receive is from power and the exertion of power and the control over
0: other humans' lives. And uh, he's the, like a Terminator or something. Yeah, it's, he's just single-minded about acquiring land and being serious and, and very not grim. Having fun. He's the, yeah. he's
1: like the he's the Terminator of presidents, or he's like the pinhead from Hellraiser of presidents, <laughs> where he's like where he's like. Oh, yes. Oh, well, pain is its own pleasure and power is the greatest pleasure. Like, come with me, explore, won't you? Well, this is yeah, – uh, let's say farewell to this flesh and hello to the next one. Uh, he's someone who – like, he only cares about achieving his goals. He wants to be on, on top of a system. His wife is very ambitious and his wife was very – like, very – was also brilliant and cunning. He doesn't seem to care about other human beings that much. Like, he owns slaves. He buys and sells slaves while president. Basically, and, oh my God, which is he had, horrifying. He had a
0: slavery side hustle while he was the president.
1: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Oh my <laughs> God, and uh, but most people, if they remember him at all, they remember him just because like he, they, his middle initial is part of his name.
0: You know, like oh yeah, one of the initial presidents. One yeah. The,
1: yeah, he's like Harry S. Truman. Or uh, Rutherford B. Hayes, where for some, reason, th- for some reason the name Rutherford Hayes wasn't, individ- wasn't unique enough. <laughs> to throw the, like, Which one? There's already yeah. a Rutherford Hayes in the President's Guild, <laughs> so you've got to be Rutherford B. Hayes. All right, <laughs> uh, this is frustrating. Or you could change your name. No, no I'll just use my initial, that's fine. But, uh, but yeah, James K. Bulke you'd think would be at least remembered as
0: this land conqueror. Right, I, like a like a, a Genghis Khan-type president or something. But Instead, he's just unknown.
1: Partly because to know him is to know how we got that land. And I think it's a uh, lot easier yeah, to just awkward. be like, oh, yeah, that's the shape the country is. Right. Like, and the Louisiana <laughs> Purchase sounds better because we bought it from somebody. We didn't yeah. buy it from the people living on it. But we bought it from France, and that's kind of a, a cute story because it's like – Yeah, it like, feels like
0: we suckered them too. Yeah, exactly. Great. It's, well, it's uh. like
1: the sale of Alaska feels similar when uh, when yeah. Seward bought Alaska from the Russians, where it feels – and that's the way like my dad would tell me the story. It'd be like, they called it Seward's Folly. Then they discovered oil on it, and it's like, well, it's not like that happened the next day. <laughs> like it's, and also there were people living there too. Like it wasn't – Alaska right. was not – it wasn't just all polar bears. Like there were human <laughs> beings there. But, but the idea of buying land – at least feels like, okay, like that's cool. But we don't think of ourselves as a country that conquers land through war, even though that's what we did. Like that's how we got most of the land in the country was yeah. by warring with the people who were <laughs> living on it already. So we tell we uh, in America, America's a great country. Let me get this one thing straight. I love it. Yes. It's my favorite country. I think it's great. But yeah. it's no country doesn't have sins in its past. The United States has huge sins. Because so much of our sense of self is is bound up in the idea of being uniquely about liberty and freedom. We want to not – we can't believe we have these other things going on. So it's better for us to be like, yeah, and then we bought all this land and they didn't realize what they – like if I can bring up the heist idea again. <laughs> we don't want to think about ourselves as having stolen a lot from somebody. But we will think of ourselves as like, look at what I found at a garage sale, first appearance of Thor. The old lady didn't, didn't know what she had. I yeah. bought her for a dollar. I'm going to sell this for thousands. And it's like – you did rip off an old lady, but you did it in kind of like an okay way because nobody knew. It's, and you're
0: like, whatever, there was oil in the comic, yeah, so it worked they, out
1: great. They called it Bill's Folly when I bought this old comic book,
0: but there's oil in it. Now who's laughing? Many thanks to our friends at Squarespace for sponsoring today's show and bringing it into reality. You know what else they like to bring into reality? Websites. That's their deal. And hey, do you have a website? Would you like a better website, third question, all of those answers, Squarespace can help you with them. Whether you are looking to start a business, show off a business you already have, showcase your work, publish content, uh, you know, just be someone who's on the internet. Squarespace, man, it's the way to do it. They make it so easy to build it. There's no crazy coding you need to do. You just assemble the elements you want within a template that is created by a world-class designer. It also won't feel like it's just something that everybody has. You can really, really customize it and make every element right for you. Also, Squarespace websites are optimized for mobile. Uh, you know, the phone, the uh, the tablet, the, the little device that most of us use to look at the internet all the time, especially if we're in a hurry. But also, if we're just chilling, your website will look good on that device. So what are you waiting for? Head to squarespace.com cracked for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code cracked to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That is squarespace.com cracked, offer code cracked. And also with these myths around presidents, like I I completely understand psychologically why people want to build a a myth around James K. Polk of nothing instead of horror, you (laughs) know, or or taking an okay president and making them seem great or something. There's also I feel like there are a lot of presidents who there are really nice, positive, cool things about that you never hear. Like um, we were talking about Rutherford B. Hayes and the initial presidents, and he is a national hero in Paraguay. Country of Paraguay thinks he's the best because in the eighteen seventies he mediated a border dispute where Brazil and Argentina and Uruguay had all ganged up on Paraguay to take about 60% of its land. And he mediated it to say Paraguay gets it back. And so now there's a state in Paraguay named after him and a city and statues of him. And I just think of him as the goofy guy who kind of ended Reconstruction by taking an election deal. But he's this hero to this whole other country. It just shows
1: you there's – I mean it's the same way that – I mean because he was a bad president. Rutherford B Hayes. He was a yeah. in, the, in the United States. One term, pretty lame. In Paraguay, yeah. He was a great president in <laughs> the United States. It was like there's a lot of labor unrest. I don't know what to do. Uh, Who cares? They're, they're overthrown. <laughs> they're just they're just hurting black people terribly in the South. I don't know what to do about it. One of the things you learn about when you're doing a podcast about presidents is that a lot of the presidents historians just kind of stop being interested in them after a while. Or there's one historian that's really interested in one president, and all the books on that president are by this one guy. Oh. And Rutherford B. Hayes, there's like two people, the younger of these two experts, I think he had died just a few years, years before we were doing the podcast, and we we're like, no, there's no <laughs> one else to talk to about this. But this – one of these historians, he said Rutherford B. Hayes was a man who happened to become president, and it was like, yeah, he's just kind of like – I mean he had been a governor, but like he just comes off as kind of like a guy who happened to – happen, you know. and again, he didn't stumble into the presidency. A lot of – Back, at, back alley dealing was done to win him that office. Yeah. And it's one of those weird things where people are like, rather fraud, B. Hayes, huh? because he stole the election. But his opponent was doing the exact same thing. So it was like <laughs> one of them just got better at stealing, <laughs> at stealing than the other. Right. Uh, but he's like, this guy who just gets in the presidency is like, ah, I don't know. I don't know what to do. Right. But with Paraguay, it's, it reminds me of how George W. Bush – Terrible president. I think mm-hmm. he's in the bottom five of presidents. He yeah, is,
0: I um, would say bottom two. <laughs> really, bottom <laughs> yeah.
1: two. I don't know. Like a, maybe I think he's like I don't know. It's so hard because Buchanan and Johnson, the first Johnson, mm. Andrew Johnson, are such bad presidents. It's true. And Herbert yeah. Hoover, who I hope we get the chance to talk about. Herbert Hoover yeah. is uh, a terrible president, though not a bad person. And but with Rutherford B Hayes, it's nice to hear that like. Oh, he did all this bad stuff in the United States. He wasn't a good president, but there's one place that likes him. You know, there's, there's all, it's, uh. (laughs) Well,
0: and I'm glad you bring up Hoover too, because that's the other big one that jumps to mind for me where other places like him and not just I, my mom's from Iowa and he's from Iowa. So they like him there. Oh, one of my,
1: one of my wife's good friends grew up in Iowa and she grew up thinking Hoover was a great president. Yeah. And then she went to college and she was like, okay, I bet I'm going to find out he's like a good president. And everyone's like, no, he was very bad. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so like, but all the buildings are named after him in Iowa. Right. In the, the, the town old.
0: of West Branch, we love him. I'm like, no, it's that's it. That's but, the one. But
1: even that's better than uh Pierce, who is also who's also bottom five material. It's a terrible president. Mm, yeah. He was from what, New uh, Hampshire? New Hampshire, I think. And yeah. by the before he was even done being president, New Hampshire hated him. They were burning him in effigy in his home state. And oh, it's like incredible. Oh, that's gotta hurt so bad. Like I mean, it didn't hurt him the most because he had already seen his only son die right in front of him. So that was probably the worst thing that ever happened to him. God. But he's, oh, his, Pierce's story. The is, past was gnarly. It's so sad. Yes. He was, this is, okay, we'll talk about Pierce. Then we'll talk about it So Pierce, yeah. bad president, terrible. The other thing about learning about presidents is you're like, oh, they're human beings and their lives are affected by things other than what gets into the history books. So like William McKinley, his wife was often sick. And so he was often, and he was very religious. And so his mm-hmm. life was kind of teetering between I know God has a plan for me, but my wife is always ill. Why is he doing this to her? And that affected him. Calvin Coolidge, right before his second term or at the beginning of his second term, his son dies. And he just kind of loses interest in everything, in being, in being president in a big way. Wow. And so you read stuff where they're like, Coolidge's philosophy was do as little as possible as president. And it's like, well, but also he lost all interest in life you know, to a certain extent right. because of this terrible thing. And Pierce, <laughs> who was going to be bad probably anyway – between the election and the inauguration, he and his wife and his son are – they went to a funeral for his wife's uncle I think. And on their way back on the train, there's this big train accident. He and his wife are fine, and his son is killed oh. right in front of them. Oh my and God. so in his inaugural speech, he mentions kind of uh, that he's suffered this misfortune recently. And, you know, and that cast a pall over his marriage and over his life. And so for a lot of his term, I think it was him just kind of like – Possibly doing like some self-medicating to get over this unhappiness. So it just goes to show that like when a president makes a decision, it's not just like, oh, he looked at all the factors and he looked at his governing philosophy and he decided to do this. Like human beings who are very – prone to what their emotions do, which I guess we're learning with the current president since he is only prone, like he only follows his emotions. <laughs> and reveals all of them all and of the time. All the time. The time uh, yeah, to, to the entire world yeah. by writing them out while he's sitting on the toilet, probably, but we're right. about to go to bed. But right. so Herbert Hoover. Okay. So he's a guy who, if he had never been president, he probably would be mostly forgotten now. But if he was remembered, he would be remembered as a great man.
0: Yeah, as he, a humanitarian.
1: As one of the great humanitarians because you yeah. had, in the period... Kind of during and after World War I, you had these periods when horrific famines were taking place and much of Europe would not have food or China would not have food. And Hoover, who was like a mining engineer, like he ran mining companies and he he had spent a lot of time in China specifically and like spoke Chinese and things like that. But he would be able to wrangle all these private organizations into funding and distributing and making possible – food for people who didn't have it. And so when he – that's why he was elected president. And he served – he was like secretary of commerce I think for, at one point. Yeah, but, something like that. But uh, when they made him president, they were like, this guy is amazing. Like this is the guy who saved China. He saved Europe. Like he—he he, nobody can run a huge operation like Herbert Hoover. This guy is going to be <laughs> the most amazing president probably ever. And then the depression hits and unfortunately he – is so tied to his idea of what a government can do when a private organization can do. And at the same time he says, you know, I'm I'm putting my own words in his mouth because I haven't talked to him, but he says to himself he's like, and there's a great book called uh Herbert Hoover in the White House The ordeal of the presidency. It's a really good book in that it kind of takes it from his point of view to a certain extent, like it's a fair book but it doesn't Come in with the idea immediately that Hoover sucks, You know that, that uh, Roosevelt rules, Hoover drools, which is true. But like the book, the book is like let's take it – let's not assume at first that Hoover drools. But, right. but like – but he comes in and he says, when I did all these amazing things, I didn't need the government to do it. And I don't want to tip this government into socialism because we're seeing that in Russia right now and I don't want it to happen here. And he's so tied to this idea that even when he will do a, a few things that might help a little bit, he doesn't do them big enough. He won't put the power of the government behind taking people off relief during the Depression and because he's like, I shouldn't have to do this. Yeah. Private people can do this. We did it before and we can do it again. And also, what what would it mean for the country? And he just couldn't do it. Like he failed. And you had the, you got to this point where like he would go to towns to visit them and people would be shouting like, hang Hoover, get him out of here. And he'd have to leave and it's like uh,
0: – Yeah, pretty dark. Things got yeah. really crazy <laughs> and dark
1: and – The crazy thing then is – and he's one of these guys who like he has that loser epithet on him. Like he was president. He lost re-election to Roosevelt. Roosevelt went on to serve more terms than anybody else ever has or ever will until Trump has them – until Trump has Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell repeal that amendment and just gets – keeps getting re-elected over and over again. But Hoover's this guy who like should have been a really great president and instead he wasn't the man for the time and Roosevelt was the man for the time. This is an argument I used to have all the time with a, a coworker of mine. Uh, Mr. Jubin Parang, who's the works for The Daily Show still, yeah. where he's a he, – I don't want to slander him, but he's a hardcore Marxist Trotskyite. And he was like – he's like, it's social forces that make, a, that make a period. And I'm like, no, it's individuals. And we would argue about this. And really it's a combination of both. And like to be a successful president, you have to be the right person for that time. Yeah. And like Lincoln was the right person for that time. Hoover was not the right person for his time, but then Roosevelt was. You you will read stuff where people are like, Oh yeah, Hoover was smarter than Roosevelt, but Hoover was like a grumpy gus who couldn't talk to people (laughs) and could never admit when he was wrong and would just get really mad. And but oh say Hoover gets that loser epithet, but then he outlives Roosevelt by years. He lives into the sixties and becomes this like this grumpy Republican. And he released I have a copy of his last book. You wrote a lot of books. I have a copy of his last book, which is called like Fishing as a tool to clean the soul, or something. It was like it was like fishing for fun and to clean your soul, or something like that. That's and, bizarre. And that's the kind of thing that ex-presidents do when they get too old. Is they're like they they they're like all right, I I'll write this fishing book now, I guess.
0: Well, and he was he was multi-talented and also a bad president, but like reading about him and actually looking at his whole life it's. I feel like he was almost two for three. As far yeah. as countries he helped or hurt, he, he was <laughs> uh, the, the swing and a miss was America but he, like you said he was a mining engineer early in life made a fortune at it and then he was in China in the city of Tianjin during the Boxer Rebellion and in 1900 was helping westerners there like organize and protect themselves from the violence and there's uh, sort of stories of him saving children yeah. in this urban fighting.
1: Oh, he's he saved and, I mean through his work before his presidency, you can't count how many millions of lives he either yeah. saved directly or indirectly saved. Like there's, so, like one of the greatest human humanitarian workers, you know, but because then he was a bad yeah. president. So that's all anyone cares about, you know.
0: Because they, they've tried to do like approximate stats for the other country he uh, swing and a hit it in was.
1: <laughs> swing and a hit
0: it. I'm great at phrases. Uh, it was Belgium because at the start of World War One, the Germans invaded and occupied Belgium and then wouldn't help feed the people in Belgium. And then meanwhile, the British were blockading that part of Europe. So mm-hmm. boats weren't coming in either. And like you said, he felt that through private organizations, private work, he ran something called the Commission for Relief for Belgium and raised $12 million a month, which helped them over a period of three years get 2.5 million tons of food into the country. And they vaguely estimate he was helping feed 9 million people per day. Yeah, it's So crazy. he saved the country of Belgium.
1: It's, it's great. It, like a, it shows you that being president is just one thing that happens in Some people's lives, some people in 45 people's lives. It's like (laughs) – but it's not – someone isn't born the day that they run for president or the day they're elected president, and they don't die the day that they leave the office. Like it's part of their life the same way that anything that happens in the world is part of the story of the world. But it's not the only thing, and it's interesting how – you look at someone like Jimmy Carter where his presidency is almost like a footnote. To the rest of his career afterwards, like yeah. he and he looked, it's
0: almost a little bit shorthand for an ineffectual presidency, especially if you're a modern Republican. Yeah, you're yeah, like, that was a nothing for years. Nothing happened, they, but a lot happened. A lot happened,
1: great. and then he wasn't an amazing president himself. But like he wasn't, right. he wasn't the disaster people thought was. But he wasn't amazing. But then, like with a lot of presidents, I feel like they're like that was it. That's all I get to do in the world. And he's like, no, like I'm a youngish man. Like I'm going to keep doing things. You know, I, yeah. I'm still going to do – like build houses for people and I'm going to go all around the world doing stu- the charitable things and still t- t- teach Sunday school and things like that. But the Or like Bill Clinton where he's like, I'm finally going to write that book with James Patterson that I've w- <laughs> always wanted to do, which is – A fictional novel. A fictional yes. novel about a president who fights <laughs> off like, like kidnappers or something. Like I don't know what it's about.
0: You, but, I haven't read it. Have you read it? No, I'm, I, I will not, I will I probably hear not it's be reading it. A complete mess. Like, <laughs> I'm
1: sure. because well, the other thing is that, like, who wrote it? James Patterson didn't write it. He doesn't write books anymore. Bill Clinton? You think he was sitting at the laptop <laughs> typing out dialogue? <laughs> probably not. Like, right. I don't know. I assume the two of them talked on the phone. They came up with some ideas for a story. Gave it to someone in the James Patterson factory, who then gave it to other people. It's like,
0: yeah, they both have factories, like speechwriters and ghostwriters, and yeah. That's
1: something that always <laughs> used to bother me. Is that. Presidents – like their quotes often were written by other people, but yeah. it's really the person who says it and not the person who – like working as a – I worked – I was a writer at The Daily Show for a long time, and writers would get frustrated sometimes because they would write something, and then John would say it and – John Stewart. And, John, and he would say it, and John would get the credit, and they'd be like, oh, but I wrote that. and I'm like, yeah, but he said it. Like you didn't say it. Like you wrote it, but you didn't have to stand behind it because right. you weren't the one saying it on television to millions of people. So And
0: you were aware he would get to say it. Yeah, you, know? that's, you also
1: <laughs> – you work for him and he pays you to write things that he's going to say. And then he's going to change it anyway later. So, but the, like his name is – that it wasn't like you wrote it and then he stole it from you. But, right. But it wasn't kind of until I realized that that I was like, oh, it's OK that like John Kennedy gets credit for something that like Theodore Sorensen wrote because John Kennedy is the one who said it. And by doing that, he he's the one who – took ownership of those words. When you're writing for somebody else, you're like, yeah, maybe you could say this, but they when they say it, they are making the choice, okay, this is will be attached to me forever. So,
0: yeah. And that that might be a good way into another president where I had no idea I was so fundamentally wrong about how they communicate because Calvin Coolidge, you guys in your episode about him have audio of him doing long radio speeches, where I think the one thing anybody knows about Calvin Coolidge is that he's silent Cal. Yeah. And there's an anecdote where they said they'd try to get him to say three words, and he said, you lose. He was constantly talking to people, like, all the time, despite this grief that we talked about before.
1: Yeah, despite, <laughs> I mean, especially in his first term before the grief. But yeah. But it's also like, you can't be president and not talk to people. Yeah. And you can't be weird. president and not communicate to the country, because one of the... Most important jobs you has you has because I'm a moron. One of the most important jobs because I'm a professional <laughs> writer. One of the most important, important jobs you have as president is to communicate to the entire nation and either tell them we should do this or we should do this. Here's why we shouldn't do this. Like you have it's you know Te- Theodore Roosevelt you know called it the bully pulpit. They say where, and they don't mean like it's really funny because bully kind of means something different than it did then so oh, yeah wasn't it,
0: it was roosevelt's catchphrase he'd be like bully, like, ha-ha. Like, bully meant,
1: like awesome yeah so when he said like it's a bully pulpit he meant this is a great pulpit but now people are like he said that because he wanted to bully people into doing things and it's oh, like i never put that together i mean he kind of did but i don't right. think he meant it that way at the time but uh <laughs> one of your most important jobs is to effectively communicate to the country and like
0: yeah
1: say what you will about president trump and i will he's terrible That he's, he's a great communicator in that, like, he's pretty clear in what he, (laughs) what he's, what he means. He's a liar and he'll say whatever. And he says crazy things. But like, when he talks, you're like, okay, that was pretty clear. He thinks that guy's a liar or that guy's a crook. Okay. Like he thinks that guy's dumb. But we well, have, And
0: he because he's also and I don't think he's doing it in a positive or constructive way, but he's a little bit inventing a way a president can use Twitter because we've only oh, had sure. two presidents who tweet. Yeah. And it turns out Coolidge was sort of inventing. <laughs> like the
1: way that you said that was as if Coolidge was the other president who tweeted. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we only had two presidents <laughs> who tweeted, Coolidge and Trump. And yeah, at Silent
0: Cal. Uh, <laughs> oh, but follow, so it's retweet. like
1: I think in social settings, he was probably not the most. Talkative guy. But yeah, he, yeah, but he wasn't like, the, you hear about it as if he was like this mysterious figure like, who like sits in judgment and yeah. then like <laughs> to only speaks when necessary. And people are like, what is, what is, what's Coolidge going to think, what's he going to think? <laughs> when will he pronounce? And then he finally says,
0: no, you know, like guilty. Right, right. Like, He was doing radio addresses. He was uh, apparently sort of inventing the blue collar photo op that would later be George W. Bush clearing brush, you know, oh, like yeah. he was out there in. I think he was from Vermont like yeah, he was, doing and, folksy stuff.
1: There was a silent, there's a silent film called like at home with Coolidge where he's right. like, he's in overalls and he's like doing his farm work and it's and it's very much, and at that time he would already been elected official like he but he's like you yeah, know just come on down to the old Coolidge home in the, in what's this, <laughs> su, such and such notch Vermont, or whatever it's called like i'm going to just follow me around while i do my chores around the farm and it's ridiculous right. and he pretty much invent. he was like radio film these are things that nobody has ever really used strongly before and i'm going to use them to sell this image of myself i'm going to use them to get people's attention and i'm going to do it in a way that creates a persona that I can then inhabit So instead of – and I control things. He was one of the first like real leakers where he would tell a reporter something and be like, don't say I said – say like a White House official said that. And so it became shorthand that like if you read an article from the 20s and it says according to a White House official, that probably meant Calvin Coolidge. But he created this, this anonymous figure who lives in the and works in the White House who is not him. But who is saying things that Calvin Coolidge wants to get out there. Like he was this real like master manipulator of the media. This amazing alliteration, and I'm very proud of myself for it. Wow, and yeah. uh, because he got the nickname Silent Cal, probably because he was like at a party after, uh, after his family tragedy. And they were like, hey, Cal, how you doing? Uh, I don't know. He got this nickname, and that's all people remember about him. So they're like – because they don't want to remember the other stuff about what he actually did. So it's like Calvin Coolidge, Silent Cal. You got it. Never talked. Okay. Probably was mute. I don't know. This couldn't, this couldn't right. talk. First mute president. What a, what a trailblazer!
0: <laughs> there, it's like not totally sure if he's alive. Like, it's just a dummy in a suit. Yeah. You know? yeah. And if you
1: look at a picture of him, he doesn't look like the most dynamic guy. So it's easy to remember him as, oh, he must have been a kind of a nobody when he wasn't. He was. Uh, he was like just masterful at controlling the political apparatus in a in a lot of ways. As opposed to you look at a picture of someone like William McKinley, and he always looks to me like a magician. That you just surprised. Like he always says in photographs, he has a look at his face like, oh? Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> As sort of a wrap-up person, but also somebody who brings a lot of myths together. George Washington, original president, first one. I think <laughs> original president, yeah. OP. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's it's sort of astonishing how wrong we are about everything about him. Not only what he – there's sort of the fables about him that seem fake, but also the basic biographies of him all came mainly from one by a guy named Parson Weems who was mostly making stuff up. Yeah. And then also he doesn't look like he looks on the dollar bill. <laughs> Everything's wrong. Everything's fiction.
1: All the all the, all the the portraits on the bills are kind of like a little stylized or a little – Yeah, that's true. He is, well, he's someone who – I mean it's hard to know exactly what it looked like because there's no photographs. Yeah. And if you look at paintings – His face changes quite I mean he was probably a little bit like more potatoy looking than he is in a lot of the portraits. I mean they have like a death mask of him. So or maybe it's a life mask actually. I think he actually they did a life mask of him. So that's the closest we'll get. But he is such a mythic figure. And he was even when he was alive, he was already like mythical. And so he became like he's like our Aeneas, you know, like he's just this like legendary hero of, of these misty, this misty time in the way past, you know,
0: in the yeah, long yeah. away. A uh, Hercules of some kind who just did all the things. Yeah. And then now there's a country after. And oh, how about
1: that? And there's that thing. And, it's, <laughs> and it's an, he's another guy where like, – like with Lincoln where we want to believe him as this like aw shucks bumpkin who just was like good-hearted. He's just – Mr. Smith goes to Washington, this good-hearted yokel who like got us through. Just like that covers up the, the reality of Lincoln as like this brilliant, cunning – Ambitious man, right? Washington, and in many ways, Washington facilitated and aided this myth of himself, like as this kind of like above it all, like superhero of a guy. Like it covers up the fact that he was very much like also ambitious and also like a more interesting figure than we were led to believe. He was this guy who had amazing control over his emotions most of the time, but not all the time, and they would they would come out in these big flashes and. It, but it's – very. but the way we think of him is like, yeah, he's the father of the country and he's just always very like, well, of course, America, <laughs> time to be free. But in reality, he was this guy who was famous from a young age. He was a Virginia militia guy and was, yeah. work, was fighting in the West against the French with the British Army. And when he was like 19, he published his journals and they were very – and they were a big read all over the place. And – was very much like a soldier. There's this story about he went with this this native chief who was allied with the British. They were on a mission somewhere. They captured some French envoys. I think they were supposed to meet up with some French envoys to negotiate something. And instead, something went wrong during the whole thing, and they captured these Frenchmen and this chief – Split open the head of one of the Frenchmen, and, according to the story, then took the brains out and rubbed them on his hands almost like he was washing his hands. And this is happening right in front of George Washington. And then George Washington, a little bit later on, he leads his men into this horrible massacre where they all get killed by the French because he doesn't know what he's doing. (laughs) And so by the time he is running the Continental Army, like this is like a battle-hardened guy and a guy who's seen a lot of horrifying things, like terrible things. And also a man who came not from extreme poverty but didn't come from much and aspired to be a wealthy Virginia planter who never had to worry about money uh-huh. when in reality he never had enough money and he was always in debt. He was always <laughs> buying stuff he couldn't afford because he needed to live this lifestyle. So he's this guy who – he wants to rise above his station and be a wealthy Virginia guy. But he's also like – who knows what stuff he was dealing with from his war, wartime. And there are people who would say like – He had this placid exterior that you could tell he was forcing it on there, and underneath him were these passions and this temper that that he had to keep under control all the time. And there's this great story that I love – that I forgot who it was, that someone dared someone else to like – and so he also held himself away from other people I think partly as a way to keep them from seeing how much effort it was taking him. To be this person. Oh,
0: that's why he was removed. He was just uh, Patrick Bateman. He was just constantly I mean, inventing kind of a persona. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, and then taking guys home and killing them after he talks to them about Huey Lewis. Yeah, but he's uh, this story where a guy goes like, hey, walk up behind George and slap him on the back and be like, hey, Georgie boy or something like that. And the guy does it and Washington just glares at him so hard that the guy's Great. like, this is the scared, most scared I've ever been in my life. Like, Yeah. <laughs> When when they have uh, – I think it was at the Continental Congress. They're talking about like, what are we going to do? Who's going to lead this army? And Washington walks in wearing his old British uniform like there's no reason for him to do that. Yeah, it's you know, kind of a stunt. It's, it's kind of a stunt so that people <laughs> – and he's like – he really liked, I think, being the guy everybody respected and everybody thought was the necessary man. They always – they refer to him as like he was the man that was necessary for any of this to have happened and – when he was still alive, before he was even president, they were building up like, oh, this is the greatest man who ever lived. Like, And to live up to that, he can't be the ambitious guy who's always buying stuff he can't afford and has to deal with these crazy memories of leading his <laughs> men into a massacre and like not really being that great a like war strategist. You know, He was a great general because he could keep an army together and not let it fall apart. Like his big achievement as a general is – I'm not going to let this army fall apart or be fully defeated until the French can come in and help us or or God saves us or something. Although there's that story about him praying at Mount Vernon. He didn't really do that.
0: uh, Well, because also there's – I love the way the title sums it up. It's a cracked article called Five Reasons George Washington Was Either Lucky or a Wizard. (laughs) And it's because he, from the French and Indian War through the Revolution, was not that good at – leading armies in terms of strategy and Uh, would keep either losing battles or winning them because magically fog worked out or snow or the weather or some other random thing that really, really worked out for him.
1: Yeah. He was, (laughs) and it's partly because he, like the reason he had to do this Fabian strategy eventually of we strike and disappear. We never give them enough time to defeat us and take us capture, but we never really beat anyone in battles like that kind of stuff. Well, we'll, the best we can do is like hurt them and leave. But, uh, he was obsessed with the idea of winning in this – in a big climactic battle, and he's always trying to come up with strategies that are so crazy. No one could ever see them coming. Like he thought of it – it was like, a, he, like he's this big schemer, and so like <laughs> crossing the Delaware on Christmas Eve is kind of the one that he pulls off. But he had all – he would be like, look into it. Can an army ice skate across a frozen river? Because they'll never see us coming that way. No way. And he's like, <laughs> he's like I know how this war is going to end. They pushed us out of New York. During the Battle of Brooklyn and the ba- Battle of Long Island, the Battle of Manhattan and all that stuff, I used to live right on the site of the Battle of Brooklyn. And so I would just walk around thinking about it all the time. And it was this, this big battle where like the victory was they didn't destroy us. We were able right. to evacuate in the middle <laughs> of the night and, and Lord Sterling's Maryland regiment giving their lives at the old stone house. Oh, it's a great story. But he was like, I know how this war has to end. The northern army and the southern army we're going to join back up. The French are going to come and we're going to take New York. In this biggest, epicest, most wicked, awesome battle. Like a movie. Yeah. Like in his mind, it was like, this is the climate. Yeah, like a movie. Like the place they kicked us out of, we're taking it back. Once we get all the boys together, we're just going (laughs) to drive straight into New York and we're just going to like take it back from them. And instead, they went at
0: at Yorktown yeah, I'm, I'm imagining he's super <laughs> mad at some chunk of Virginia yeah, that exactly. is not cool and it's like yeah it's like oh
1: <laughs> this is not amazing this like, sucks this, this is, and, New, and New York and New York is in British hands until the Treaty of Versailles signed right and, uh, uh, yeah Paris yeah yeah or Treaty of Paris I'm sorry not Treaty yeah. of Versailles yeah that, now you cannot take anything I said yeah, seriously yeah. this whole thing until <laughs> so the Treaty of Paris signed and then, Amer- and then New York leaves on evacuation day or, or England leaves New York and he's like yeah great okay thanks <laughs> like this whole time he's like got this vision of this is gonna be my ultimate glory is when I ride at the head of the army into New York City and we just shove the British into the sea and it just instead he wins but in this other way and you know he's like, yeah, but that's not how I want it to happen. Man. Like, I know we won, but it's like <laughs> it was supposed to be like a cool way. Like, I know we won nationals, but like because their best guy broke his knee. Like it doesn't I wanted to go toe to toe to him with him on the field. Right. But instead he like got in a car crash and he broke his knee. <laughs> like that's not the way I want to win nationals.
0: But like I dunk on Cornwallis <laughs> yeah, and then exactly. the backboard shatters over him and, and the buzzer goes off. comes down. In I slow get kissed. Motion. I get kissed again.
1: <laughs> it's like a technical foul and then and then they run out of time on the clock. It's like <laughs> and so Washington was like, I think he want, maybe maybe and this is just me armchair psychologizing wanted to prove yes I am a great general and I'm going to prove it by winning this huge battle. But instead it's like. He didn't need that. It's like, Washington, you don't need that. Everyone always think, already thinks you're great. That's the other thing is that like once the war started, it's like George Washington is the greatest man ever. During the war, this guy sucks, this guy sucks, this guy sucks. Why are we not winning? This guy sucks, right. this guy sucks. Constantly
0: almost replaced and then, at one point, almost a coup. Almost,
1: yeah. yeah, almost kind of like his generals are – some of them are plotting against him. And then war ends. Washington, you're the greatest man ever. And it's similar with <laughs> Abraham Lincoln where in a way only when Lincoln is killed yeah. does he suddenly become, oh, this was a great man. And there were all these people who thought he was a great man along the way, but everyone else was like, don't free the slaves yet. Hey, why haven't we freed the slaves yet? You're doing it wrong. Why haven't we won this war yet? You suck. Get him out of here. Like this is crazy. This guy doesn't know what he's doing. And then we win the war and he's dead. And everyone's like, oh, what a, what a, what a, what a, what a perfect person. What an amazing hero. <laughs> and with Washington, it's the same way. Like it's just yeah. easier to remember, oh, yeah, George Washington, great general, didn't tell lies, wooden teeth. Everything's gray. Yeah, they
0: were ivory teeth. Ivory yeah, teeth. teeth. Yeah, sure. Oh, and yeah.
1: ivory with a little bit of slave teeth in there, possibly.
0: Oh, which boy, is we, won't,
1: we don't have time to get into that. It's yeah. really scary and, and sad. <laughs> but I would say George Washington, you know what? I'm glad you tried so hard because it got you to the final goal. But hey, don't feel bad that you didn't win that. You didn't get to fight that battle in New York. If I'm sitting George Washington here, I'm like, hey, man, like, take it. Take pride in what you did. Don't feel bad about what you didn't do. You know? <laughs> I know it's on your bucket list. He, he I'm sure he like— When he's dying at at the end of his life in Mount Vernon, his bucket list, like everything's checked off except win big battle in New York and have children. And it's like, (laughs) like, oh, I should have gotten around to to doing those
0: things. And he gets to do both those things today. Come on in, George, to the studio. presidential wish makers. (laughs) Folks, that is the show for this week. My thanks to Elliot Kalen for so many different things, and especially for being way into Lincoln. I, I honestly thought that was more of just an Illinois people thing. Uh, Lincoln and Michael Jordan, I always assume it was just local, and then it turns out the whole country was into it. It's pretty cool. And hey, you, why don't you get into our footnotes where you will find Elliot's podcast, Presidents Are People Too, his movie podcast, The Flophouse, also a link to Netflix to watch Mystery Science Theater 3000, The Return. If you like Cracked or if you just like comedy, that's probably a, a show you're going to be into if you're not way into it already and able to quote a lot of the jokes. Our footnotes also contain tons of Cracked.com material by tons of writers about presidents. Uh, there's also a link to the shameful evidence of my Grover Cleveland fandom. In my defense, I mixed it with Batman. And speaking of cracked, I would I would be so remiss if I did not mention our old pal Daniel O'Brien and his hilarious book, How to Fight Presidents. It is linked and for sale, and if you haven't already read it, you'll love it. It's going to be great. And he's another comedian with a presidential focus that you don't want to miss. Really good. What else do you not want to miss? Our next LA Live episode, Saturday, September 15th at UCB Sunset. Mark your calendars. There will be more details soon. I know that show is going to be about TV, which is a thing... I love, and I think a lot of other people do too. So come on out, have fun with us. And why don't you use your music player to enjoy the Budos Band because their song Chicago Falcon is our theme music. Our episode was engineered by Jordan Duffy and edited by Chris Souza. And if you love this episode, that's great. If you hated it, let me know about it on social media. That's right, social media. A thing I really do think Calvin Coolidge would have nailed. He was a master media manipulator and a grief machine. Aren't you glad you know that now? Now he's interesting. He's not just a black and white picture. And you can let me know how glad or not glad you are about that by connecting with my Twitter account, at Alex Schmidty. I'm also on the wider internet at my website, alexschmitty.com. It's got my show dates and my newsletter and so much more. And I'm happy to say we will be back next week with more Cracked Podcasts. So how about that? Talk to you then.